This week, we have a returning guest, not-so-secular podcast host, Mon Reyes. Oh yeah, by the way, we also have another returning guest. Maybe you heard the name, Jason Everett. Welcome to The Jay Aruga Show. Welcome to the Jay Aruga Show, the first conservative podcast in the Philippines where we help you defend life, marriage, the family in this crazy world. We have a special episode today because we'll also defend truth and reality with charity. As always, because we have a special episode, we invited a guest co-host, ladies and gentlemen, returning to the podcast, youth leader and host of the Not So Secular podcast, Mon Reyes. What's up, Mon? Hi, everyone. Hi, Jay. Good to be with you. Hey, Mon. Are you ready for this episode? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> okay. Our guest are, is returning is a returning guest as well for the Jay Rogasho podcast, and I'll give you the floor to introduce him. Game? Yeah. Our guest today is the guy behind Chastity.com and Lust is Boring podcast. He and his wife have inspired many people from many places, including myself, toward pursuing authentic love and chastity in dating, singleness, marriage, sexuality, and all the other topics around that. He has written books, given talks, traveled countries with this message. And personally, I admire him for his ability to speak about difficult matters in a charitable manner. His new book is called Male, Female, Other? Question mark. A Catholic Guide to Understanding Gender, which is what we're going to talk about today. Here joining us for this episode is Jason Everett. Hi, Jason. Jason. Thanks for having me on. Kamusta uh, na I always get a kick when you speak in Tagalog. <laughs> Working on it. <laughs> How have you been since the last time you've been in this podcast, which is about two years ago? What, what kept you busy? Doing well, what's largely kept me busy is this topic of gender. I mean, I've been spending largely the last two years between speaking engagements and everything else uh, researching the book. I thought, okay, I'm going to, you know, read 10 or 15 books on the topic of gender, then I'll have a good handle on the you know, topic and then I'll be able to write my own on it. And I realized after that mm. first 10, 15 books, like I'm not even scraping the surface at this. I need to read five more books on endocrinology, five more books on pediatric medicine and psychology and anthropology, feminism, mm. philosophy, Mar Marxism. It was like an mm. endless rabbit hole until 20,000 pages later. I felt like, okay, I think I'm in a spot now to be able to speak on the subject with some level of competence. And so it's, it's a mystifying territory to kind of wade into, uh, to really get your head around some of these concepts and, and understand the struggles that some of the people uh, are going through uh, when it comes to gender dysphoria. Yeah, it's quite wild. You know, when, I, when I get to see the footnotes for every chapter, it really is a well-researched book. And maybe we could start there. Um, this is kind of a two-sided question. What made you decide to take on this difficult subject of gender ideology and to write about it? 
And maybe alongside, maybe you could also address, like if someone, for example, were to play the identity politics card and say, oh, look, it's a straight white male commenting about the experience of transgenders or of people with gender dysphoria. What does he know about it? What, yeah. How would you respond to something like that um, along with how you wrote this book? Well, first I'd say, well, does being straight or white or male mean that you can't have gender dysphoria? You know, mean that you don't have a gender identity, meaning that you don't have a, a sex? I mean, it's an ad hominem type of argument of trying to like speak against the man of just saying, okay, well, you can't speak against this or, you know, unless you're a female minority in the trans community. Well, guess what? This is not a left or right issue. I mean, you look at, there's people in the trans community that are saying, hey, look, Giving puberty blockers to kids is child abuse. Mm -hmm. You've got left wing here in America, Democrats who voted pro-choice their whole life and work for Planned Parenthood that are saying slam the brakes. These countries that are way ahead of us, like mm -hmm. Finland, Norway, Sweden, the Netherlands, they're backing off from their policies of pushing these kids through transitioning, realizing we did that way before the US and the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing the fallout and we're backing off. We're pulling back the troops. We realized, wow, this did not help the kids in the way that we thought it would. And so I think it's a big mistake mm -hmm. to think this is a left versus right issue. Uh, it absolutely is not when you start to dig into who's trying to stand up for the rights of these kids. Um, in terms of why I wrote it, well, in my travels around the world, I, I was meeting so many young people and families that were wrestling with this and really looking for answers. I remember meeting a dad and his son experienced gender dysphoria and wanted to get some surgeries done. And I remember the last thing the dad said to me, he said, you know, I said, I think I'll just let him have the surgery. And that way, he, that way, when he regrets it, that can be his punishment. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Like you wouldn't let mm. a doctor cut off your kid's toe, but you're going to let a doctor do that. And, and it was just like, wow, parents, teens, young people, people experiencing gender dysphoria need resources to understand, look, there's room for you in the church to navigate these difficult issues. It's not like, oh, get all your stuff together, then we'll have a place for you in the pews. It's like, no, we all have different levels of brokenness and struggles, and Christ is meeting us all in our different crosses. And so you are welcome in this church. God loves you. He's got a plan for you. And it's very clear in the Bible that God mm -hmm. loathes or hates nothing that he has made because he would not create something if he had hated it. And so mm -hmm. even if a person hates themselves or hates their body, uh, know that God didn't make a mistake with you and he doesn't hate you. Yes. Yeah, and that, and that you're not a walking abomination. Like you're not a walking sin because you experience gender dysphoria. I mean, gender dysphoria is not a sin uh, to wrestle with your gender and wonder, why do I not feel like I'm fitting in here? That's not a sin. And so have some compassion on yourself because God certainly does. Jason, I love your book because I, I read some books uh, regarding this topic. Uh, Ryan Anderson's When Harry Became Sally. I think mm -hmm. Abigail Trier has a book as well and some others. And I love how you attack this issue with a Catholic perspective with mm -hmm. how to talk to people in a charitable manner. Jason, last time you were in this podcast, we were talking about the reproductive health law. I'm sad to inform you that our lawmakers now are deliberating a new bill called the Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity, and Expression Bill, or the SOGI mm -hmm. Equality Bill. So that's why I contacted you. Yeah. So the bill aims to fight discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. People who oppose, who oppose the bill, myself included, argue that if we base gender according to one's perception, 
many problems will arise. And some will say that this may be a slippery slope. And you mentioned a while that some other countries are, are already like hitting the brakes on this. Yeah. yeah so, so, so let me just segue to the subject and let's take a deep dive on it. I'd like to ask you first, what's the difference between sex and gender? Well, the, the word sex uh, can refer to two things. One, the sexual act, something mm -hmm. that you do in terms of sexual intimacy. Um, sex can also refer to our mm -hmm. biological reality as male or female. And so as mm -hmm. human beings, we're a sexually dimorphic species, meaning your sex is determined by how an organism is organized for reproduction. So for human beings, it's basically you have a mature reproductive cell. There's two different types. There's sperm mm -hmm. and there's egg. That's it. Yeah. Uh, two gonads. You have the testes. You have the ovaries. That's it. There's there's no spectrum. There's no mm -hmm. third gonad. Mm -hmm. There are disorders of sexual development, but there is no spectrum there. And so when it comes to biology, that's also immutable in the sense that every single cell that has a nucleus in your body is sexed. That's why you can't really change your sex because you'd have to change every cell in your body. I could pluck one hair out of your hell, out of your hair, give it to a forensic scientist, and they could say male. Oh. You could die a thousand years later, dig up your remains, male, female. You can tell by the bone structures. Now, oh. the word gender is trickier because it's it's morphed into different meanings over the years. Back in the 1400s, 1500s, it was referred to as primarily a word in grammar. You know, that word is masculine, feminine, or neuter. And so gender mm. referred to grammar. Uh, by about the 15th century, sometimes gender was used synonymous with sex. But predominantly, mm. the meaning of the word had to do with language and grammar. Then in the 1950s, you had a, a really, really broken, sick man named Dr. John Money. I mean, this mm. was guy... This guy identified as a polyamorous, bisexual man who promoted incest, who said that pornography could be helpful and healing to marriages, and that some wives even appreciate when the husband is practicing incest with their children because it removes some of the burden of being the man's sole sexual outlet from the wife and distributes it to the children as well. This is the guy we're talking about mm -hmm. who ushered in this term of gender roles, starting to divorce sex from gender, not merely distinguish it in the sense that, you know, your the role in which you act out your sexuality can be distinct, but no, well, maybe your gender identity can be something other than their, your biological sex. But when we start to rupture these things as what's happened today, well, if your identity isn't anchored in your body and revealed for your body, your identity has to latch onto something if it's untethered from the body. And so your identity will typically tether and attach to your personality. Oh. But there are as many personalities as there are persons, and you'll end up with an endless spectrum of gender identities, which is where we are today. And so for sometimes the word gender is used synonymous with sex, like a gender reveal party. But yeah. more often than not, it's being used today in the sense of a, an inner sense of who you are that supersedes and outweighs your biological reality. Hmm. Yeah. It's often contrasted with that, right? The the mm -hmm. biological reality. And so one of the terms that people would use when talking about gender is the term social construct. So mm -hmm. well, how would you respond to that? Like, is gender just a social construct? Is it something that we can bend and, you know, um, well, according to our will, however we want to see it or however someone feels or perceives it? it or is it supposed to be more than just a, a social construct? knowing that there is kind of this um, distinction between sex 
and gender. I, I think especially the gender roles. They say that mm, yeah. is the social construct. Well, I think we've got to affirm where there's truth in the sense that, yes, societies can shape different norms when it comes to men and women and how they express mm. that sexuality. I mean, right now, pink is a predominantly feminine color. Go back a century, pink was a predominantly masculine culture. You know, these things socially mm. can change over time. Um, but in terms of the idea that, well, you know, gender in terms of who we are as male and female is purely a sociological thing. It's just a matter that girls are given pink and dolls and boys are given little guns and blue. That's why they veer off in those directions. Now, a good way to prove this is that gender distinctions, at least in terms of behavior and toy preferences, transcends species, meaning mm -hmm. you look at primates and apes. Monkey males prefer the, the toys, whereas mm. uh, of like trucks and things like that. Female monkeys actually prefer dolls to play with. I mean, they're not being culturally conditioned. They gravitate towards the maternal. They, they even did a neat study on monkeys where the male and female monkeys were born at the same rate, but by the time they were a couple of years old, the women were five, the females were five times as populous as the, the males. Like the males were just mm. gone, you know, four out of five of them. Where was it? Where were they? They're all dead. Why were they dead? Because of their higher testosterone, they're doing really stupid things. They're trying to like jump from one tree to the next. They can't reach it. They're scampering across the road while a truck's going across. And because of their higher level of aggression and, you know, poor judgment when it comes to taking risks, they were dying off at a faster rate. And so this is not some thing culturally imposed by the religious right. Mm. This was something that was kind of being bent by their, their hormonal makeup, that because of the testosterone, the boys more geared in this direction, that direction. So it shouldn't be an either or. It's either biological mm. or social. It's both. We're impacted by our biology. We're impacted by our society as well. And so I, I think it's unhealthy to fall completely into either camp. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Let's define more terms because some listeners might be new to this. So what are the terms like gender dysphoria? What does transgender mean? And what does non-binary mean? Yeah, these, these things can be really tricky. And this is why a oh. lot of people, especially older generations, like, well, what the heck is this? This is crazy. Yeah, I'm out yeah. of here. Because they get on Facebook and see yeah. 58 genders. Like, yeah. what are these people talking about? This is nuts. Um, and it does feel like a bit of a foreign language. But if you love somebody and they speak a different language, you probably want to learn a little bit of mm -hmm. that language just to connect yes. with them on a deeper level. You don't have to make it your first language. Mm -hmm. You have to agree with it all, but enter in. So in terms of gender dysphoria, now, this is a mental health condition. You can find it in the mm -hmm. DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Health Disorders. And historically, it's predominantly impacted middle-aged men and very young boys. But in the very recent history, mm -hmm. the sex ratio has flipped, mm -hmm. and we've seen a skyrocketing ascent of adolescent girls now experiencing gender dysphoria. And so, well, what is the dysphoria? Well, think of the word euphoria. That's kind of like mm. this blissful contentment and peace. Dysphoria is the opposite of that. It's a mm. deep distress and discomfort of feeling an incongruence between your body and your sexuality and your identity. And mm. so, look, I know physically these are male parts, female parts or whatever, but I feel like I'm not that. I feel like I'm a female. Um, and it, it usually goes deeper than just I have interests that females have. Sometimes kids can get confused at a young age and think, oh, I like what the girls like, therefore I'm trans. It's like, well, no, gender dysphoria as a, as a diagnosis goes deeper than that to this real innate sense that uh, I'm not at home in my own body and I need to do something to my body to feel at home in myself. Um, 
So that's kind of gender dysphoria. Now, not every person who experiences gender dysphoria identifies as trans. Yeah. Trans yeah. is more of an embracing of a label of like, um, I'm, I don't feel at home in my own body, so I'm tr- I want to transition, whether it be through social transitioning uh-huh. of your name and pronouns and your clothes and the restroom, or a transitioning of puberty blockers, where we're giving kids these drugs that are given to chemically castrate male sex offenders to pause puberty on these kids to give them more time to decide if puberty is right for them for that particular sex extremely harmful stuff you know pauses neurological development pauses bone development you've got like 14 year old kids now with osteoporosis like an 80 year old harmful stuff Uh, some people transition through cross-sex hormones where the girl's going on testosterone and the boy on estrogen or testosterone suppressants or surgery so these are different things that could be done to augment the look of your body whether it's clothing hormones or surgery because you are identify as trans Uh like yeah Uh biologically on this but trans means on the other side of and so i'm identifying with this sex or this gender um instead of my own biological one um in terms of non-binary it's tricky because not everybody who's trans identifies as non-binary not everybody who's non-binary identifies as trans but the idea of non-binary is i don't fit into transitioning from male to female my gender is either Mm. something between male and female or outside of male and female and and so we're trying to what they're trying to do is essentially deconstruct gender to be whatever it is you feel or you think there's a website a tumblr that has a list of more than five hundred genders and so these are labels that people are trying to create that resonates with their lived experience like i don't feel like i fit in with these girls maybe i'm not but i don't want to identify as male and so there's many young girls that are latching onto this label of non-binary because they just feel like man to be a girl today good luck with that with with instagram and all the pressures to be skinny but healthy and sexy but modest and assertive but submissive but successful but domestic like it's just too much and they feel like this chasm between this glamorous women they're expected to be and and the awkward girls they are but they don't want to be a boy that's why very few of them get bottom surgery but they know they don't want to be a girl and so abigail schreier said they're fleeing womanhood like a house on fire with no particular destination in mind other than to escape and so this label of non-binary is something that many girls feel comfortable with because it's like i i'm not a boy but i know i don't fit in with a girl so here's what i am yeah these these measures can sound very drastic you know um giving cross-sex hormones to kids and top surgery, bottom surgery, it sounds really extreme if you think about it because these are, these are changes that will last a lifetime and we're giving them to little kids. And I think part of the fear is that for on the side of parents, one of the things that they want to avoid is, is this conversation about suicide. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea that if I cannot relate to my own gender, um, if I want to transition and so on, um, people say that that is linked to a, a high level of suicide is that true and will yeah. does transitioning even help that or um does it work if you want the kids to not kill themselves does it make a difference if we allow them to do this 
Yeah, the, the suicide narrative is a very powerful one. You're being yeah. told as parents, like, well, you either can have a living son or a dead daughter. So what do you want? You better help that kid transition and affirm them so they can be their authentic self. But over, for example, in the United Kingdom, the biggest gender clinic there was called Tavistock. Uh, the government actually just shut it down this past year because what happened is these girls were you know, coming to Tavistock. A decade ago, there was just a trickle, you know, 77 girls in one year. Within a couple of years, it had gone up to like 3,000 girls a year. And they're giving them puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. Then they start doing the research and the girls were actually more likely to self-harm after going on puberty blockers. What happened mm -hmm. after the surgeries and the hormones? Well, they did the study over in Sweden and found that after the surgery, the individuals are 19 times likely to commit suicide. And when you isolate out the female to male transitioners, it's 40 times as likely to commit suicide following this procedure 10 years down the road. Well, people say, well, it's because of you transphobic bigots, you're not mm -hmm. accepting them, and mm -hmm. that's why you're killing themselves. Well, that doesn't really explain all of it. I mean, it could explain some if they're experiencing persecution from their family and their community, but it doesn't explain all, and why? Why is it an oversimplification to just blame the transphobes? It's because 90% of people who commit suicide have a diagnosable mental health disorder. And in the case of St Tavistock, they did a survey of 125 huh. kids who went into Tavistock. 97.5% of them were diagnosed with other mental health problems beside gender dysphoria. And when you look at the suicide rate of people with those other disorders of anxiety, depression, autism, a history of trauma, sexual abuse, their suicide rate is the same when you take the gender dysphoria in or out. That's why when these kids go under the knife or get these cross-sex hormones and their suicide rates are going through the roof, it's because we're collaborating with mental illness at this point instead of actually treating it. And so there's these deeper underlying issues. That's why the government in the United Kingdom now has shut down the Tavistock Clinic and created a lot of smaller clinics that focus more on mental health for these young people to see the big picture. In the Netherlands, you want puberty blockers, good luck now. You go there, they'll put you on an 18 month waiting list followed by a nine month evaluation. And for the teenage girl who wants puberty blockers, it's like, what? By the time you guys give me the puberty blockers, my puberty is going to be done. And from the doctor's perspective, it's like, exactly. Because 90% of the time when the kid can go through puberty, they end up resolving. They desist from this gender dysphoria. Whereas if you put the kids on puberty blockers, almost 100% of the time, they go on to get cross-sex hormones, which sterilizes you for the rest of your life if you go from one over to the next. Mm -hmm. And so over in Western Europe and these very progressive countries, they're backing off. And so I think the Philippines would do well to step back and look at it. Okay, we're not the first ones to think of this. How's it going for these people who've been doing it a decade before us? It's yeah. like if I'm yes. driving in the snow and I look at an app on my phone for traffic, and it's like, oh, icy conditions, and there's a 47 car pile up with 12 casualties, 300 yards ahead. Um, I think I'm gonna still go 60 miles an hour right into that. It's like, no, poor decision, hit the brakes now. Yes, yes. And thanks for telling us this because I've been saying this in my podcast that we here in the Philippines, we're we're thinking about foresight. And our for our foresight is already the hindsight of other countries. Mm -hmm. So, so I think it would do us good to to see how these laws that we're trying to pass already affected other countries. Yeah, because yeah, they have to come idea? up with the, 
Yeah, they have to come up with a really good answer. Like, why would we get better results here oh, yeah. than they've had in Norway, Finland, Sweden, Amsterdam, all these places where their clinics are getting sued? And I mean, it went up all the way to the high court in England, and the judges ruled in the favor of the girl who had gone through all this stuff as a teenager and a 20-year-old. So why would it be different in, in, in the Philippines? It's not. And then the carnage, the lawsuits, it's going to be one of the greatest medical scandals in history. Entire institutions are going to be shut down because of this. But it's the detransitioners who are coming back now mm. and suing the pants off the clinic. That's what's going to make people listen is the money. Yes, yes. And I hope that happens. I hope a lot sues these clinics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jason, I'd like to shift gears because there's something that has been asked always here in the country. They say that in other cultures, gender is not binary. Here in the Philippines, we have what we call the Babaylan. So before we were colonized by Spain, just to let you know, during the pre-Spanish era here in the Philippines, in the 16th century, they say the Babaylans are female shamans. They break the gender stereotypes because they're strong women who take leadership roles and fight during combat. However, men who dress as women can also be a Babaylan. So they say we're progressive back then until the Spaniards brought Catholicism here in the country and with it, the gender binary. So what's your response to that? You have a chapter in your book about this. Yeah, we have a whole chapter in the book where we dive into this, whether it's in South American cultures and mm -hmm. cultures in Asia, Native American cultures. Uh, There's a very common theme, and a lot of the trans activists try to say, oh, it was before these, you know, white Eastern European, you know, colonizers came. There was this blissful existence of transgender natives that existed that were esteemed by the culture. And they're essentially what they're doing is looking down the well of history mm. and seeing their own reflection at the bottom. Look, oh, like, oh, look, mm. transgender people. It's like, well, wait a minute. These people indeed were probably gender non-conforming in the sense that they didn't conform with the majority of how men or women lived out their sexuality. But were these women who tended to be involved in the military or in these religious rights, because many times they're involved in these pagan rights, it has mm -hmm. a lot to do with spirituality, were they under the impression that they had the body of a woman, but they were actually a male? It's like, well, no, they had the body of the woman, but they were taking on male roles, but that didn't make them a man. Mm. And so this is a very common theme in many cultures where, you know, the, the church is, is not saying that our gender roles and the way that we express our sexuality as men and women is all going to be uniform across the board. And it must be. It's like, well, no, partly it's impacted by culture. It's partly impacted by the effects of original sin. Mm -hmm. We've got to realize that these things are going to happen in many different cultures. But when you really look closely at them, these aren't men who are identifying as women despite having male biology. They realize, yeah, I'm a man, but I, I, I practice these particular roles. And this is very different mm -hmm. than the modern idea of gender theory, where the body is meaningless. Mm -hmm. And my identity of who I truly am can be something other than my body. And so we don't need to pretend like there haven't been any cultures in the history of human civilization with individuals who practice behaviors that were gender non-conforming in the sense that that's not how most guys act or most women. History is replete with examples. But in the mm. book, we have a whole chapter where we dive in where you have transgender activists themselves debunking this native, you know, this idea mm. that there is this idyllic Garden of Eden type existence before the colonizers showed up. 
if anything, the opposite is happening, mm. where Western civilization now is importing gender theory into developing countries, saying, if you don't teach gender theory to your kids in Africa or into Central America, then we're not going to provide you foreign aid to build mm. that new school building. And this is going on. This is what Pope Francis calls, you know, this ideological colonization. Yes. That yes. is more what's going on nowadays. Jason, at the end of the book, you gave tips on how to talk to... 18 who got into this culture without spoiling too much from the book can you give us some of those tips what can we do what can we say if you have family members or a friend who identifies as trans most importantly instead of something to say listen mm. to them okay. listen to their story and help them to listen to their story what i try to say is try to listen to the gender dysphoria you know with with a reverent curiosity you know, when did you start feeling this way? Wow, I mean, that must be hard. When does the dysphoria tend to be triggered for you? Man, that must be difficult. Mm. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'm sure it's probably a little scary to share that with me because you probably thought that I'd reject you and say that you're crazy and a sinner and all this stuff for feeling this stuff. We need to take the role of listener first instead of like, well, here's what the chromosomes say and I'm going to disprove this. We've got to distinguish gender theory from gender dysphoria. Gender theory is this philosophical agenda rooted in Marxism and second wave feminism that is really a false anthropology. Gender dysphoria, more often than not, are sincere people really wrestling with the sense of identity and community and who am I and why don't I feel like I fit at home in my own body? They're not trying to overturn mm. gender norms. They're just trying to understand themselves and their lived experience. And if they think that all we have to offer them is a rebuttal and a refutal, why would they want to enter a church and spend some time before the tabernacle asking God what he thinks about this? Though our first role is to help them listen. You know, where, where, maybe where's this stuff coming from? When did you start feeling this? And sometimes the roots could be clear. I know one boy told me that his uh, sisters are all loved and, and he's mm. all the black sheep of the family. And, and I said, do you think if you were born a girl, you would have been loved the way your sisters are loved? And he said, oh, I know that I would have been. And for me, it was kind of clear there that he wasn't aching to be a woman. He was just aching to be loved. But femaleness was the ticket to finding that love. And so sometimes the root is close to the surface. Sometimes it's deeper. Sometimes it's a trauma response, a dissociation from the body. Sometimes the roots are unclear. But what you should say to that person is like, look, I feel like I'm meeting you in chapter eight of your life, but I haven't uh -huh. had the chance to learn about chapters one through seven, but I'd really like to. Can we go get some coffee? And so in the meantime, do a lot of listening and then go do your homework. Get the book, research <laughs> it online, watch the stuff we've got at chastity.com and do your homework and, and help them. Look, I don't understand all these terms. So if you could just be patient with yes. me, like yes, I, yes. I, when I hear the word trans woman, I think it's a woman who's transitioning, but you're saying it's a man. Like, I don't understand this. Please be patient with me. Uh -huh. I love you. <laughs> they need that. They need to understand we've got ears and not just a mouth. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, I love how you are able to um, navigate that, right? understanding these objective realities, but at the same time, listening to the individual person, right? Mm -hmm. I've heard, I think it was Sherry Waddell who said this, that never accept a label in place of a story. And I think you're mm -hmm. able to embody that really well. Um, yeah. I guess there are two dangers that, that uh, I see we need to avoid. I am a youth minister, so this is something that I also get to see. Um, I think the first extreme that we want to avoid is to be overly rigid to the point of condemnation, the point of rejection, the point of calling, it, uh, calling everyone, everyone sinful, even though we don't really know their story yet. 
And then the other extreme is like overly loose to the point of mm-hmm. compromise. We want to welcome everyone, but at the same time, we don't really stand up for, for the truth anymore and so on. Yeah. So um, maybe could you speak to that a little more? Like how do we navigate that? Um, yeah. So as we listen, for example, listen to the individual stories of the people that we encounter, are there other ways that we could prepare even before we get to meet them? Or is there, um, yeah. like in the case of me, a youth minister, or in the case of someone, um, like a family member, a parent most especially? Yeah. Well, one is to realize this is going to be a little bit more of a marathon than a sprint. Mm. And so keep that in mind beforehand. Mm. It's not like, okay, I'm looking for that perfect conversation. It's like, no, I've got to build a friendship here. And, and it is difficult. It's like a tightrope. Like, I, I don't want to be too lenient. But then I don't want to be all super rigid. I've yes. got to kind of walking this ridge line um, because if we're giving people love, but we're not giving them the truth, it's simply false compassion. But we need to have enough of a relationship, hopefully, with them that they're able to see that, you know, I'm willing to challenge your viewpoints on this uh, because I love you. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not challenging you because I hate you and I disrespect you, but because I love you enough to tell you the truth. Because if you love somebody, you can't lie to them. I mean, what kind of relationship is that? And so it might sting a little bit sometimes, but you, you want to be understanding that every case is kind of unique. So begin with great sensitivity, almost like treating a burn victim. Like you don't just go in there and say, hey, like super, super gentle and then kind of feel it out. Like, okay, are we at a point in our relationship where I can give them a little bit of pushback, a little bit of constructive criticism to challenge some thinking, and we can enter in kind of a critical dialogue where they can challenge my thinking, and we can still maintain a friendship and have a beer afterwards. Like, are we at that point? Are we at such a point that if I bring up anything to call gender theory into questioning, it's just going to incinerate any bridge that I'm trying to construct between me and this person. So that's why you can't just take a cookie cutter approach to the whole thing. Uh You've kind of got to walk with these people and see them not as kind of projects to be solved uh, or Mm. mysteries, but more as as mysteries of people to be loved instead of just problems that I've got to get this. I got to fix this person. You just got to walk with this person because you know what? Maybe their gender dysphoria will dissipate in a matter of six 12 months, whatever, it could go away. And usually with kids, it does. 85, mm. roughly 90% of the time, they'll come to identify their biological sex. Other time, it can persist well into adulthood, decades of wrestling with this. While there's still solid Catholics practicing the faith, loving God, receiving the sacraments, even entering into marriage, but secretly wrestling with this on the side. And so what they need is not some walking Google to like to just give them all the statistics and disprove them but kind of walk with them because it can be a very alienating space in which to live where their families might be like, what, you're trans, you know, you're kicked out, you're living on the streets. Okay, now if you're a person on the streets trying to identify as the opposite sex, how are you going to find a job? Well, a lot of them find job in sex work, which is very dangerous. Obviously, they end up homeless. They, They end up resorting to prostitution just to make ends meet. And it's an extremely dangerous lifestyle. And so they could already be dealing with a lot of hatred, a lot of violence, a lot of persecution from their own families, sometimes within the church. And so it's a real lifeline when they can actually come along to a Christian mm-hmm. who, you know, understands oh. what the church teaches on anthropology, but can walk with them in love instead of just trying to disprove them with an apologetic argument. Jason, thanks for your time. There's so much to unpack. And for the oh, listeners, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll point you to Jason's book. So, like I said, I read many books on the subject of gender ideology, but I haven't read something like your book, Jason, Male, Female, Other, question mark. Because not only does it has all the data and studies, because if you're reading a Jason Everett book or 
reading his website. It's always uh, like that. It has a lot of reference and studies. So I appreciate that, having a book uh, with many reference and studies. And at the same time, it has compassion and it tells us how to deal with these things when we, we have a family member and friends. Mm-hmm. So everyone listening, I highly recommend Male, Female, Other by Jason Everett. Mon, thanks for joining me today to chat with Jason. The floor is yours. Uh, you can g- give him your message. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Jason. This, this was really helpful. And um, I really love the pastoral heart behind the book that you wrote. And you're right, this really requires relationship. And I think part of the trouble is really relationships take more time to build. Um, It takes more time to build relationships than arguments. And um, this is really something that I think we have a lot to learn from, um, a topic that we have a lot to learn from as the church, as Catholics. And I, I am very hopeful for the future. This is something that requires a lot of prayers, requires a lot of working together as, as the body of Christ. And um, I want to thank you for everything that you're doing in this topic and even beyond it, everything that you've done in the past. So thank you, Jason. Uh, well, you're welcome. And just please keep us in your prayers. And yeah, the general idea is just kind of hold on to that person's hand with one hand, mm-hmm. hold on to reality with the other and don't let go of either one. Okay, uh, Jason, uh, how can we follow you and your work on social media? Uh, if you go to chastity.com, you can find us there. And you can also find the links to our podcast, Lust is Boring. You can get the book, Male, Female, Other. You can connect with us through uh, Twitter, through Instagram, YouTube. Our Facebook's down right now because it just got hacked this week. Ooh, uh, and someone deleted the entire Facebook of 125,000 followers. So yeah, not everybody's extremely fond of the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so let's all, as listeners, pray for whoever was Please. behind that for their future vocation because uh, God wins. Um, but yeah, you can connect with us all at chastity.com to get the resources, listen to the podcast, or, or find more information. All right. Mon, anything you'd like to plug before we end the episode? Yeah, my podcast is called Not So Secular, where we explore the sacred and the seemingly secular from the lens of a youth missionary. And the best, the easiest way to connect with me is at Rizmon Reyes on Instagram. That's R-I-Z-M-O-N-R-E-Y-E-S. All right. Thanks again, Jason. Please pray for our country as well. We'll do. Malaming salamat. <laughs> okay, this has been another episode of the J. Roga Show. At the end of the day, it will be night. Goodbye. <laughs>